John 14, verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear every single word Lord Jesus, that You speak. Not so concerned about, Father, people hearing my words, I ask that we will hear every single word that You speak, Lord Jesus. And that those words, Father, would wash over our hearts and implant themselves in our hearts and give us vision, Lord, to see the road ahead the way You have invited us to see it. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that You teach us. We trust and believe that You teach us. We pray that You will lift the words off the page and that we will hear the voice of our sweet Lord Jesus. And we will follow. In Jesus' name, Amen. We make it so much harder than it has to be. I mean, even watching the National Day of Prayer video, and looking at these circumstances of life as they're trying to present. And some of you have experienced those circumstances or, or similar things happening in your lives. And, and I watch that stuff and I think, you know, in, in view of ISIS and riots and world problems, some of the things that we make so difficult are really not that big a deal. And yet to each one of us, they sure feel that way, don't they? In our personal struggles in life... But I want to say, and please hear me in this, we make it much more difficult than it has to be. We make it so much harder. Some 4,000 years ago, a man named Job lived in peace and prosperity and success. He was a contemporary, we believe, of Abraham. Job had it all going for him, and then his world fell apart. And some of you, if you were here, we studied through that book. You may recall one of his friends, his friends, the so-called three, the three friends of Job, a man named Eliphaz, tried to comfort him. And he said this, he said in Job 5.7, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Now that's one man's opinion as reported in the Bible, but not necessarily the biblical position. Do you understand that there are some things written in the Bible that are not God's point of view? Well, Rick, that's, that's a little radical. No, it's that Eliphaz spoke it, and he's wrong. Simply because the Bible reports something doesn't mean that it's right. There are reported instances of people saying things in Scripture, doing things in Scripture, sinning in Scripture. They're doing it completely wrong. One of the reasons I love Scripture is that God gives us the reality of man in our mistakes, our failures, and our sins in light of God and all His perfection. And so that's why when you read books like Job, you need to know who's talking. You need to be clear about that because Eliphaz is wrong. The biblical position is not that man was born for trouble. No, I would say man has invited trouble. We were not born for it. We were not made for it. But we have invited it. We welcome trouble into our lives. And we got trouble right here in River City. (laughs) We got trouble with a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. If you've seen the music man. We got trouble. Man, earlier this week, sparks flew upward in Baltimore as cars and buildings burned. Why? No, I understand the perspective. I truly do the perspective of people who feel like they are being treated as less. And and that's not right. The only person I treat as less is less. (laughs) 
He's the only one who really deserves to be treated that way. (laughs) And as usual on May Day, May 1st, the May Day rioters were there in Seattle, dressed all in black, causing their problems, breaking things, ignoring law enforcement, rioting for the sake of riots, anarchy for the sake of anarchy. Some just there for the looting. And I'm watching this take place around our country. We've been talking about these things. And and I'm wondering about this. In the midst of all this, respect for the governing authorities and for law enforcement continues to spiral. And I'm going to say this. It's the fourth time in as many weeks that Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, the love of most people will grow cold. And I sit and I'm watching it. As no time before in my life, I'm watching the increase of lawlessness and I keep asking the question, I keep thinking, what's going on? Why are we inviting so much trouble? Why are we causing so much trouble? What's the issue? I remember something my brother said years ago. He said, Rick, if Jesus isn't the issue, people are going to find an issue to make their issue. And that's absolutely true. If Jesus is not the focus of your life, if He's not the issue, if He's not what your life is about, you're going to find something else. And the thing is, nothing else will get you where He can get you. What's going on? The Bible tells us, Proverbs 29.18, where there is no vision, the people perish. The New American Standard translation of that same verse, that's the King James translation. New American Standard says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Now is that not what we're seeing right now? Because there is no vision. Where are the world leaders? Where's the voice of reason? Where's the voice of vision in the world today? Who's calling out for truth? Who's giving a direction to go? Among all the leaders of the world, who's doing anything that's actually helping the world? There is no vision, and so the people are unrestrained. We need a vision. And we have one. And we've had one for 2,000 years. Jesus gave this vision a vision for what I would call the untroubled life. If you want a vision for the untroubled life, John 14, 15, and 16. The passage that we're heading into right now, that that Thursday night discourse as they call it, the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night of the Last Supper, the night before the crucifixion, Jesus begins to teach. And in John 14 and 15 and 16, we have the most beautiful, amazing, encouraging, uplifting, directional vision that I believe has ever been spoken on the planet. A vision for the untroubled life. Within that larger vision is the sixth I am statement of Jesus. The sixth one. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the sixth one out of seven. It's interesting to me because the number six is the number in the Bible of a man. And more than any other I am statement, we need this one. Oh, we need them all. But this is the one that goes to the heart of our greatest need. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. For a world that's lost, Jesus says, I am the way. For a world that is horribly deceived, Jesus says, I am the truth. In a world that's dying, He says, I am the life. And to a troubled world that is searching and crying out literally for some kind of direction, some kind of vision, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through Me. A vision for the untroubled life. Are you troubled today? Are you worried? Are the circumstances of your personal life causing you anxiety or Depression or dismay? Are you looking around the world as so many of us are and saying, where's it all headed? If you are sensing that, listen, Jesus the Christ has a vision for you. And a vision that starts right here, right now. Back it up, listen to how he begins. He says in verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Literally, you believe in God, you believe also in me. 
It's not a conditional statement. He doesn't say, you believe in God, believe in me too. He's saying, command, imperative, you believe in God, you believe in me. You understand? You believe in God, you believe in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe. Believe in me, Jesus says. He's the focus of faith. He is the focus of trust, of confidence, of security in this troubling world. He might as well have just said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Have I earned your trust? Then trust me. Believe in me. Do you? As he speaks to the disciples after three years of ministry. Do you? Believe in me. Trust me. And his words are all the more convincing. Because of the circumstances in which he delivered them. Now think about this. This wasn't on the beginning of his ministry. This wasn't at the apex of his popularity. It was on the eve of Jesus' greatest trouble. That he turns to the eleven and says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is staring down betrayal. He is staring down the denials, the trials, the floggings, the sentencing. And finally, the cruel crucifixion. This is all imminent, and not imminent as in next week or next month or next year, soon to come to pass. Imminent as if that very night he was about to head into the darkest trouble of his entire life, and I would add eternity. And in the midst of that trouble, in the calm before the cross, he gives a vision so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If if anything speaks the heart of the Father, that's it. That on the eve of His trouble, He would be looking to His followers, to His disciples, and would actually say to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. He's looking around the room, I have no doubt, at eleven troubled faces. This had been a peculiar Passover Unlike any other that they had spent with Him. Unlike any other meal that they had enjoyed with Jesus. He had just called the Passover meal His flesh and His blood. What? How weird is that? Jesus Himself admitted to them that He was troubled. As He told them that one of their own, there among them, was about to betray Him. He told them He was going away to a place where they could not follow. And he said to them, to Peter, Bro, you're going to deny me three times before dawn. Before the rooster even begins to crow. And in the context of all of this, looking around at the disciples, Well, I would be troubled if I knew no more than what they knew on that night and heard all that Jesus had said. I would be sitting there going, Something's not right here. This is not like the previous meals that we have shared. This is not like the previous ministry that seemed to be getting better and better. We seem to be on a downward spiral and now he's talking about his flesh and his blood and his death and betrayals and denials and something's not right. There had to be trouble on their faces. He looks around and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. Amazing. Rather than wallow in worry or descend into distress, on this heavy, unsettling night, Jesus gave a vision to calm all fear, to quiet all confusion, to alleviate all anxiety. And it's so simple. He starts with himself. You believe in God, you believe also in me. But then he momentarily detours to the place where he is going. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, or literally places to stay. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Why does Jesus say this? Because when you know the way in which you are going, the journey is far less troubling. 
Oh, you may have difficulties along the way, struggles, pit stops as it were, but if you know where you're headed, it's all good. If you know you're going to get there, if you know the one going before you is going to come back and get you to take you there, not a problem. Your car breaks down, no worries, he's coming for me. You have someone cut you off on the highway, not a problem, he's going to come pick me up. He's preparing the place and I know where that is. When you know where you're going, the journey is far less troubling. Which is why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. He had just told them where they're going. To meet Jesus in the clouds and so to forever be with the Lord. Comfort each other with these words. Repeat these words to each other. Share these words. Do you ever do that? With a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Do you ever look at them and go, yeah, Jesus is coming. You know, they're freaking out. I got all this to do and all this to take care of and I just don't know. Yesterday, oh, my sweet wife, we were preparing for Anna Marie's surprise birthday party. Now, Cheryl, as many of you know, has just had ankle surgery and wrist surgery. She just likes to get it all done at once. <laughs> just get through this. Ankle's doing better, but the wrist is in this cast, and, and she's, but she's walking around the house trying to get stuff done, getting everything accomplished. I've got the kids at soccer and ballet, and it's a little house on the freeway, you know? <laughs> it is. And so we're going through all this stuff, and I get home with the kids. Surprise! Honor me, surprise party. Wonderful day. Fantastic. And right before I left to take the kids out the door, and all this craziness is going on, Cheryl goes, it's our day to bring the snack for soccer. I'm like, why do we sign up for this stuff? Why do we even do this? And I saw the look on Cheryl's face. It was a look of trouble. Now, had I been a spiritual man in that moment, I would have said, you know, Jesus is coming. Instead, I said, why do we sign up for these things? You know, and now she's stressed out and I'm stressed out. I saw the look on her face and then we figured out it's not snack day till next Saturday. So we're working on that right now to get that done. Comfort one another with these words when the insanity of life comes in. Husbands tell wives, wives tell husbands, children tell parents. Hey, everybody tell everybody Jesus is coming to get us. He's preparing a place for us right now. Comfort each other with these words. They are words of greatest comfort. Now, there's a movie that uh, is a favorite of Cheryl's and mine from years ago, Out of Africa. Maybe you've seen it. I just love the panorama and the scenery of it. It's just phenomenal. I love the, the, the accent of Karen Blixen, who is the main character in the movie. It's, it's a cool movie. Anyway, there's a relationship in the movie that is my favorite, and it is between the main character, Karen Blixen, who is actually, her pen name is Isaac Dennison, wrote the work, the, the novel Out of Africa that they made into the movie. Karen Blixen has a servant on her farm in Africa. She's from Denmark, buys a farm in Africa. She has a servant there whose name is Farah. And Farah is a very quiet, very obviously deep man. And, and throughout the entire thing, you see the relationship between them just become very special. At the very end of the movie, she has lost it all. I'm not spoiler alert. I would say, but this was back in the '80s, so if you haven't seen it by now, whatever. So <laughs> she loses everything. She lost the farm. Literally, she has to go back to Denmark with nothing to her name. She's standing there in the train station with Farah, and he's trying to understand her leaving. And she sa- and he says to her, "How how will it now be between you and me?" And she says. Do you remember when we used to go out on safari? And at the end of the day, I would send you on ahead to prepare camp and to build a fire, and I would come to you? She said, it'll be like that. Only now I'm going on ahead. And Farah says, you must make this fire very big so I can find you. (laughs) Jesus made the fire very big. That we might find Him. That's why He tells us, I am going to prepare a place for you. These words of heaven are not pie in the sky. They are down to earth comfort. They are not words, by the way, note this, of elders and angels and throne rooms and crystal seas. The words Jesus speaks here are in my Father's house. At Dad's place. There are rooms for everybody. 
I'm building on. I'm adding to. I'm preparing for. Rooms in His Father's big house. And when our cities burn, and our citizens revolt, and our comforts fall down, remember this. Hebrews 13.14 says here, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Jesus says, I'm getting home ready. And He builds the fire very big. I have more to say about heaven. We're going to come back to that on Wednesday night, even these verses. But Thomas immediately responds in verse 5. He says, Lord, we do not know where You are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, while our heavenly home is a great comfort, a great encouragement, Jesus now gives four reasons why He is the source of the untroubled life. As we journey home, four reasons. You have heard this verse, I have no doubt, many times. Many of you have heard this hundreds of times before. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Yes, we've heard that, Lord, and we've run by it, Lord, and it's part of our Christian psyche, Lord, but there's so much here. Let's pause and take them one at a time. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. Hodos. In the Greek, the way, it means I am the journey, the way followed. But the language is absolutely vivid. It fascinates me that God chose Hebrew and Greek as the two primary languages of Scripture. There's some Aramaic, there's a tad Latin in there, but it's mostly Hebrew in the Hebrew Scriptures and Greek in the New Testament. And both languages are very, very vivid. Far more than our English tends to be. This one word, I am the way, hodos, is used by the Greeks to describe three things. It describes, first of all, a cleared road. A cleared road traveled by one who has gone before. A way that has been made. A path that has been laid. A cleared road. He's the way. So we're not picking a path through dense salal and forest and underbrush. We're not thrashing and slashing our way through uncertainty in life. I am the way, he says. The way paved by one who has gone before. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the des- in the desert. A highway for our God. Well we know that John the Baptist came to clear the way. To clear that path for Messiah. For Jesus to come. But guess what? Jesus is that way. Amen. He is that path. He is that cleared highway for us to follow. I am the way he says. In Matthew 7.13, he said, enter through the narrow gate. Remember in John chapter 10, he said, I am the gate. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who finds it. Now, perhaps you've seen paintings or or renderings of this verse that show a broad, glorious highway and a rocky path with thorns and and it's kind of craggly. That's not what Jesus said. He said the way is wide. Yes, absolutely. He said but this way is narrow. He doesn't say it's thorn-filled and craggly and difficult and hard to travel. It's just narrow. But it is clear, gang. It is a cleared road. Back in 1920, Robert Frost, speaking of of decisions in life, wrote that very famous poem, The Road Not Taken. He writes, I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Two roads, two ways, but Jesus says, I am the way. I am the cleared road. Perhaps narrow, yes, less traveled, but it is straight, it is clear, He is true, He makes all the difference, He's a cleared road. But the word also means a charted route. The Greeks would use this word to describe a charted route, as in a course followed through difficulties by a ship. Psalm 93.4, more than the sounds of many waters, the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. 
And the seas of life may gather up around us, and the storms may rage, but He is the root charted through the seas. He's given us charts to get through His Word. He's given us a captive, a captain, His, His Spirit, to guide us through troubled waters. I am the way, the cleared road. I am the way, the charted route. Number three, He says, I am the way, a channeled river. It would use the same word to speak of a river and the channel, the riverbed itself, through which a river would run. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. Isaiah 43 19, Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. But understand this, and it's very, very simple, but so significant. Jesus says, I am the road cleared. I am the route charted. I am the river channeled. In other words, you don't just run this road, this route, this river with me. You travel it in me. I am the road that you're traveling on. It's me. I am the way. I'm not a stop along the way every Sunday throughout your life or every Christmas and Easter. I'm not a pause in the journey. I am the way. What does that tell us? It's the voice of one who says, I want to be with you always to the very end of the age. I'm the way. I'm the relationship that matters. I don't leave you. I don't take rabbit trails. I'm the way. Jesus says this of Himself. He says, I am the truth. I am the truth. Psalm 51, verse 6, David. (coughs) Excuse me. David said, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Now, we're going to get a little philosophical here. Truth. Truth in the Greek is aletheia. Aletheia means genuine reality. Genuine reality. Aletheia. Something as it is seen, expressed, revealed, or disclosed. Truth. The word truth in the Greek assumes absolutes. Okay? Even in an uncertain world, the word aletheia assumes certainty. Something you absolutely know and can bank on. I am the truth, he says. The Greek people used it to describe what is certain in three primary areas. Truth in the law. Truth in history. And finally, (laughs) truth in philosophy. There is truth in the law. The law is truth. And of course, history bears out the truth of what has taken place before. And finally, in philosophy, there is truth. Of course, all these three can get muddled in the human brain. Law, history, and philosophy. You want to talk about places that have been attacked, where the truth has been attacked, there are three areas for you. Is there truth in the law? Yes, and plenty of loopholes. Which is why we keep adding law upon law upon law, because every time we write a law, there's a new loophole to the law. That's why every single bill coming through Congress these days is not a page or two, but it's thousands of pages. Because we've got to try and close the loopholes of the law. You can't do it. The law, truth in the law, is kind of shaky. The only law that is truth is the law of God. That is truth. You can bank on the law of the Lord. It's perfect. Absolutely. Is there truth in the historical record? Well, you would think history is true, right? (laughs) Yeah, unless it's rewritten by a a revisionist. As we're seeing take place in our schools today, constantly rewriting history, retelling things, recasting things that are not the way they were, that are not the truth as it was absolutely seen and experienced by our forefathers. So even in history, truth is under attack. What about in philosophy? (laughs) Philosophy. That's the degree that you take in college. Any philosophers? Anyone study philosophy in college? Did you? God bless you. 
learned just enough philosophy in late high school, early college to really mess me up for a while. It was the Greeks who came along and introduced, first suggested the idea of relative truth. You know what's interesting? You won't find it in the Hebrew Scriptures. You won't find it in the Jewish mindset. It is absolutely foreign. Relative truth is foreign to the Hebrew mindset. When the Jewish person spoke of truth, when the Hebrew Scriptures speak of truth, it was just truth is absolute. There's no alternative. It's just truth. Because truth is truth. Truth is what is real. Truth is genuine. It's actual. It's absolute. There are no relatives. It's just it is what it is. The Greeks came along and said, yeah, but what if it's not what it is, what it's not? It might not be what you think it is. Not, perhaps is. And people start wobbling on it. And suddenly truth, well, what is truth? That's what Pilate's going to ask Jesus. What is truth? Meaning, what is truth? You idiot, it's truth. It is what it is. I am the truth, he says. By the way, good news for students. As summer draws near and prison escape syndrome increases, no one is going to study their way into the kingdom. No amount of truths, plural, are going to get you into the kingdom. Because truth is not simply a concept or a notion or an idea. Jesus comes along and says, truth is a person. I am the truth. He embodies truth. Aletheia, truth in its most literal translation means non-concealment. And Jesus Christ is the non-concealment of God the Father. Suddenly in Jesus, the Word made flesh dwelling among us, we see God. The veil is removed. The concealment, the mystery, the distance between the might of God's divinity and and man's humanity is now bridged because Jesus is the truth. He's absolutely God. No longer concealed. 2 Corinthians 3.14 tells us of the Jewish people their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. You wonder when you talk to someone about Jesus or about the truth, why they can't see the truth. There's a veil there. And the Bible tells us it is removed, listen, it is removed in Christ. Why? Because He's the truth. Without the truth, you will not see the truth. He is the truth. And so the veil is lifted. 2 Corinthians 3.15 To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And there is a glorious understanding that that begins to unfold in a person's life when they give their lives to Jesus and not a second before. Have you experienced that? Followers of Jesus? That suddenly you started to understand things you just didn't know before. And you even find yourself asking the question, why didn't I why didn't I get this then as opposed to now? I understand now, I see it. This is marvelous, but I didn't see it then. Why? Because there was a veil. Because until you come to the truth who is Jesus Christ, you're not going to understand the truths and how they lay in this world. Jesus doesn't just speak truth. Get that. He is the truth. Because truth is more than a paradigm. It's a person. More than a concept. Truth is incarnate in Jesus Christ. In in, in Jesus, truth became a living, breathing, flesh and blood person. So that, instead of studying legal treatises... Instead of wrapping ourselves up in the law, which we cannot keep, we walk with Him. Rather than poring over the historical record and debating what happened before us, we can talk to Him. Leaving behind the vain philosophies and the empty ideologies of the world, we can listen to truth Himself. And when you just hear the words of Christ, when you read the words of Christ, when you focus on what Jesus said, you are in, you're drawing in the truth. And I dare say that, that to study Jesus, to listen to the teachings of Scripture, not only opens your mind to understanding about the Scripture, but opens your mind to understanding about the entire world in which we live. 
It's what truth does. It's what He does. Keep a finger there and turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Just head right in your Bibles a few books you'll get there. Paul got this. Paul understood this. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul makes the comment that Jesus Christ is the substance. All the other things are shadows. Even our churches, even our religions, even the things that we do, they're shadows of the substance who is Jesus Christ. And now in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, Paul says this, This I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Notice, he doesn't say you did not learn Christianity in this way. He doesn't say you did not learn this new sect of Judaism in this way. You did not learn our new faith in this way. No, he says you did not learn Christ in this way. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, You lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I am the truth, Jesus says. The absolute, authentic certainty of God as realized in a genuine relationship with Jesus. I am the truth. Now, notice what's just happened. Jesus said, I am the way. Which means, to my physical, natural man, He's the way to get me through. He's the way to get me from where I am to the Father. He is the way, speaking to my natural man, my flesh. He says, I am the truth. He's speaking to my mind, my soul man. My mind where, where reason and intellect functions. I'm the truth, he says. I'm where your understanding is. I will speak to your thoughts and give you right thinking and righteous behavior. I can do that. He's just dealt with in my, my body and my mind. Hey, I wonder if he's going to speak to my spirit. And he does. Because now he says, I am the life. I am the life. Which more than anything else speaks to the spirit of the person. The spirit of the natural man. The spirit of the natural woman. The spiritual man or woman. I am the life, he says. By the way, he doesn't say, I am the light. Get that. Too many Christians wrongly quote this. Oh, yeah. I I am the way, the truth, and the light. That's not what he said. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They're mixing up the I am statements of Jesus. He already said, I am the light of the world. John 8, 12. We get that. He is the light. But here, much bigger. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I am the life. He lays claim to life itself. Zoe in the Greek. Life. Zoe is more than existence. Zoe indicates the dynamic vitality of living. It's it's energy, vigor, animation, innervation, that which moves us and motivates us, that which shows us as different from dead. I am the life. Think about it this way. Go back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel has a vision of the dry bones. The dry bones in this valley are sun-baked and starch white. Bones everywhere. And suddenly, they start rattling. And they start coming together. Ankle bones connected to the shin. And they start to rattle. And they stand up. And there's a valley full of skeletons. What a marvelous picture. Ezekiel's like, dude. And then all of a sudden, 
sinew and muscle and organs and flesh begin to cover them. And now they're standing there, an entire army, but they're not alive. They're not Zoe. They're flesh, skin, bone, able to stand, but they are not alive until what? Until the Spirit comes into them. Until... Ezekiel 37 verse 10 says, So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life, and stood up on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now they're alive. Now you're alive. When? When my Spirit comes into you. I'm the life, Jesus says. This eternal vitality, this everlasting life comes from God, right? I mean, that's our understanding. Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The animation of our flesh is by the Spirit God puts into us. Every man, every woman has a spirit, which is who we are. Our true self. But then John tells us in John 1, 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. And then in John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Wait a minute, Jesus. I thought when we were created, when we were born, when we had a spirit in us, that we became life. Yeah, we have life. But Jesus said, yeah, but I am the life. Oh, you have life. You have spirit in you that, that animates your bodies. But I have come that you may have life abundantly, life overflowing, life to the max. And if life is wearing you down, if life is exhausting you, if you are weakened by trouble, as many of us can be, Jesus said, I am the life. I am the life. What is it that gives you the energy to do anything worthwhile? I am the life. And here's where it's so simple, but we make it so complicated. Jesus is the strength, the energy, the vitality we need to carry on. Where we make it complex is we say, I've had a hard day, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I can't go to church this evening because I just don't have it in me. No, you don't. That's why you need to go. Because you don't have it in you. We come to Jesus that it might be poured into us. That He gives us life. I am life. You want to live, man? Woman, you want to live? I am life. Along with being the truth and the way. He speaks to my spirit that is in me, but that still gets weary. That needs animation. That needs innervation. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is true God and eternal life. Which is a life that is animated forever. Feeling a little weary? I am the life, He says. It's me. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. I am the way, he says. I am the truth. I am the life. And Thomas Akempis said this, Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing Without the life, there is no living. I am the way, and the truth, and the life. And then Jesus adds one more thing to this magnificent vision. He says, no one comes to the Father, but through me. This is the most important and absolutely emphatic statement of Jesus in all Scripture. And it causes people... Some real trouble. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way, there is no other truth, there is no other life that can get you to God. Well, I've heard you Christians say that. It sounds awfully exclusive and intolerant. (laughs) 
And when people challenge that, they, they think they're so high-minded. You know? I am not like you Christians who think of yourselves so highly as to say your way is the only way. <laughs> I believe in every way. Well, you're an idiot. <laughs> that's not Jesus speaking, that's Pastor Rick. It's not even Pastor Rick, that's just Rick. That hat off. This is the verse, this is the one that riles up the coexisters. No one comes to the Father but through me, but through Jesus. I am the only way. And those who say, coexist. Let's just all get along. Can't we all just get along? It really riles up and upsets the relativists who say, ah, you're getting all absolute on us. There are many ways here. It really bothers the universalist who would like to say, it doesn't matter what you do, what you think, what you believe, where you go, who you are, it doesn't matter, it doesn't make any difference. We're all going to end up with God eventually, ultimately. That's the way it is. Wrong. Jesus rips the rug out from under all of that vain philosophy. And says absolutely clearly, and there is no two ways about this, there is no way around this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now human philosophy would revise this. To say, I am one of many ways, I am one of a number of truths, I am one of several different lifestyle options. Every person comes to their own God in various and sundry ways on their own terms. And it's a lie. That is not what he said. So absolutely clearly. Let me say it again, in case anybody missed it. No one comes to the Father but through me. So is Jesus intolerant? Is he exclusive? Is he narrow-minded? Narrow-minded, yeah, narrow is the way. So I guess you could say, narrow is the gate. If you want to call me narrow-minded for believing this, go ahead, because yeah, there's one way, one truth, one life, one Jesus. Yeah, I would call that narrow. So okay, I'm narrow-minded. Is Jesus, though, being intolerant here? One more Greek definition for you. Let me show you how he is not, in any way, shape, or form, intolerant or exclusive. Watch this. The Greek word here is for no one... I believe the King James translates that no man comes to the Father but through me. That would be a little exclusive. It's not what Jesus says. He says, and the word is udes, no one. No one. He didn't say no man. That would be meanthropos. But he doesn't say meanthropos. He says udes. No one, nobody. You want inclusive? Jesus includes everyone in this statement when he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. You see, that's a message to the entire world. How, how inclusive can you be? No one comes to the Father. I'm talking to every man, woman, and child on the planet. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, ladies, sorry, he doesn't say no man. You're not off the hook. You are included. No one, no one, no one, not Billy Graham, not Moody, not Spurgeon, not Luther, Augustine, Irenaeus, Peter, Paul, not John. No one comes to the Father, but through me. No one means everyone. And there's not a single one who doesn't need Jesus. So here's the question. Why is that? Why does it have to be that way? I mean, if Jesus is going to be so emphatic about this, why? Why couldn't He have made a number of different ways? Now, we've approached this actual question different ways in the past, but just let me give you one answer this morning for why it must be this way. Verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. Philip, no doubt trying to wrap his brain around this, said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And yet, 
You have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Listen. If you and I had never met, and I I, I sent a message to you, and I said, if you want to know me, spend time with my family. You know, I'm out of the country right now. You hang out with Cheryl and the kids if you'd like to get to know me. You might get some idea about me. You might get some understanding, perhaps some insight, but you wouldn't know me. If I said, talk to my friends, my co-workers, uh, read my bio. Again, you might get some notion of what I'm like. It often cracks me up that I, I will talk to people who have listened to the teachings uh, of the Bridge Fellowship online. They've heard me teaching over the years. And then they come to the bridge, either for a visit, they're from out of town, or someone from the area finally will come to the bridge, and they'll say something like, I know all about you. And they smile, and they look at me like we're best friends, and I don't know them from Adam. And having never met Adam, I don't know who they are, you know? And I'm like, well, that's great, that's great, you don't know me. You really don't know me. You think you do, you hear me in these, but you don't. Here's the deal. If you really want to know me, there's only one way. No one comes to Rick except through Rick. There's only one way to the Father. Because to know Jesus is to know the Father. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. There is no other way because He is the Father incarnate. He is God in the flesh. How can there be another way to get to know the Father but through Jesus who comes as perfect representation of God? And it took me years as a follower of Jesus to understand this. It made me a little uncomfortable. We've talked about this. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Kind of in that, you know, God overall, Jesus less than, and the Spirit less yet. The force, the energy. No. Father, Son, Spirit are God. To know the Son is to know the Father. So you cannot come to the Father except by the Son. Does that make sense? And this is what Jesus is saying. He he says back in verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in Me. Get it? You believe in God. You believe in Me. Therefore... Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus is the vision for the untroubled life. Here's where it gets absolutely simple. We just need Jesus. We just need to be with Jesus. We just need to listen to Jesus. We just need to talk to Jesus. We just need to pour out to Jesus. And if we do that, there's your vision for an untroubled life. Otherwise, trouble... Now someone might say, okay, Rick, I understand that. I love Jesus. I have given Him my life. I follow after Him. I'm here every time the doors are open. I want to be in the Word. I am in prayer constantly. I'm with Him. And yet I have troubles. I I didn't say you wouldn't. Huh? What do we do with all the troubles? Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, and yet we have bumps and bruises and wounds and scars all along the way, every one of us, and no one is immune. If you are a human being, you are going to get hurt. If you live in this world, you are going to have problems. If you live and breathe, you're going to have scars and wounds. You get to my age or older, you will look back on a highway that is littered with accidents and problems and sins and failures. That's the human condition, my friends. So we're born for trouble? No. No. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, We do not lose heart. For though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 
while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen, we're all going to have troubles. Life will be filled with troubles. The issue is what you do with those troubles. That is up to you. Again, you're going to be wounded. You're going to get scarred. No one is immune to the wounds of the world. The question is, and please really hone in on this, the question is, are the troubles worth it? What do you mean? I mean, what's behind the scars? What's behind the wounds? Being a child growing up with a cleft lip and cleft palate, I had many surgeries, 21 by the time I was graduated from high school, on my lip and nose and face. 21 different surgeries. So I spent most of my formative years growing up in and out of hospitals and then going back to school the next day. And elementary school, kids can be cruel. I dealt with that. I think every elementary school child deals with that at some level. But little kids, and even today, not so much, I guess, recently. I think they're afraid of me now. But when I was younger, (laughs) children would come up to me and they'd say, What happened to your lip? I loved the question. Because I would go, shark attack. (laughs) Oh yeah, oh yeah, shark attack. It was quite a battle. I won. Lost a little lip, but I won the battle and surfed on into the shore. I mean, what a story, right? I got scars. How'd you get the scars? Shark attack. What's behind the scars? It's just a cleft lip. You know, it's just something I was born with. What's behind the scars? Childhood pain? No. Parental love is behind these scars. You see, God saw fit to give me to two parents who took me to all of those surgeries, who took me to the best doctors available who gave me opportunity, who took me to speech therapists so that I could... (laughs) Remarkably, that's what I do now is speak. (laughs) There's love behind these scars. When I look in the mirror, even now, and, and normally, you know how we look in the mirror, we don't see our faces so much. We see all the blemishes, you know. But we we just get so used to seeing our faces. But when I pause and look, I I see. I see the scars and, and where they run. I remember... But I don't see a painful childhood. I really don't. I see love. Love behind the scars. So here's what I'm saying. In this world, I'm going to have scars. Either for good reason or for no reason. Some of the scars, and I have a few, are just wounds of my own dumb choices. Like the time I was riding my bike down this massive hill on a bike hike. I've told you the story quickly though. I just went over the handlebars, landing on my face, (laughs) right after a surgery by the way. I think it was about two weeks after a surgery. I have a scar here on my arm. I have one on my knee from that bike accident. You know, stupid, just stupid. I just went over the handlebars. But these scars, they remind me of the love of a father and a mother. My point is this. We can have wounds of foolishness, and we all have them, or scars that convey the love of Christ. Yeah, I've got bumps and bruises, but you know what? Jesus healed me. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And I don't look back at my life and wallow in it and feel sorry for myself and and sink into depression or despair because, oh, life has been so hard. No, I say, Jesus has been there all the way. You know, Jesus was there before you chose Him. And if you haven't chosen Him yet, Jesus is there going, come on, come on, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so Paul could say in Galatians 6.17, From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. 
The untroubled life is not a life without trouble. It is a life worth every trouble you will ever face through Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Amen. Rachel, come on up. Let's pray together. And Lord, with these simple words, You have given us a vision. A vision to see our way through difficulties and challenges and trials, the the big things that we see on the news and the little things that go on in our daily lives. You are the vision. We love You so much, Jesus. We want so much to know You and thereby to know the Father as well. And I just pray, Lord, over my brothers and sisters this morning, just for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just the revelation of Jesus. Not the pursuit of all kinds of different truths or philosophies or paradigms. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that You will bring that revelation into this place into our lives and that the revelation of Jesus would wash over our troubles and our problems that we would simply sink into your arms and live this life for you and by you and through you and in you because you are the way and the truth and the life. Pour out revelation now, I pray, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to stand and sing. If you would respond to Jesus in any way this morning, please do so. Prayer team, come on up.